Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. The University at Buffalo School of Social Work is making a difference every day. Through the generation and transmission of knowledge, promotion of social justice, and service to humanity. We offer MSW and PhD programs, continuing education programs and credits, online courses, licensure exam preparation, professional seminars and certificates, and much, much more. To learn more about the UB School of Social Work, please visit www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. This is your host, Ajoa Robinson. A good outcome at the end of life. That's how Dr. Robert Milch describes the goal of hospice services. He and Dr. Donald Shedd are today's guests on Living Proof. Dr. Robert Milch is a staff physician and medical director emeritus for the Center for Hospice and Palliative Care in Buffalo. Dr. Milch joined Hospice Buffalo in 1978 as a volunteer medical director and has been a leader in hospice and palliative care for more than 30 years. Dr. Donald Shedd is a professor emeritus of the University at Buffalo School of Medicine and Roswell Park Cancer Institute and past president of the Society of Head and Neck Surgeons. Dr. Shedd was one of the founding members of the board of Hospice Buffalo. Today, Drs. Milton Shedd discuss the history of hospice and hospice in Buffalo, the challenges of the early days of hospice, changes that have developed over the years in the nature of care, and what they see as the future of hospice and palliative care. Dr. Deborah Waldrop, Associate Professor at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work, interviewed Drs. Milch and Shedd. I'm Dr. Deborah Waldrop from the University at Buffalo School of Social Work, and I have the privilege today of speaking with Dr. Donald Shedd and Dr. Bob Milch, both of whom have been central figures in the hospice movement in Buffalo, as well as regionally and nationally. We are grateful to have the opportunity to be able to record how the history of hospice and Hospice Buffalo shape current care for people who are dying, and how they believe that hospice care will evolve in the future. I'd like to begin by asking our guests to introduce themselves and just give us a brief explanation of their work with hospice. Dr. Shedd? I'm Dr. Donald Shedd. I'm a retired surgeon from Roswell Park Cancer Institute, and I was involved uh, helping my wife in the early days of Hospice Buffalo. Thanks. I'm Bob Milch. I'm uh, the Emeritus Medical Director of Hospice Buffalo. I've had the privilege of being associated since 1978. Thanks very much to both of you for being here and for sharing your wisdom and your expertise and your experience with the hospice movement and the evolution of Hospice Buffalo. We really appreciate it. I'd like to begin by asking Dr. Shedd to give us some of the history of Hospice Buffalo. And so my first question to you would really be, what is the original germ of the idea for starting a hospice here in Buffalo? Okay, Deborah. In the late 1960s, my wife Charlotte and I were working at Yale University. She is a nurse and I as a surgeon. We both were impressed by the generally poor level of care provided to terminal cancer patients at that time. The emphasis was on the cure of disease, but there was little interest in providing good palliation for the patient who could not be cured. In that era, there came to lecture at Yale a woman named Cicely Saunders from London, 
who was the founder of the modern hospice movement. She was a person who had undergone training as a physician, as a nurse, and as a social worker. We were very impressed to learn from her that it was possible to provide to the terminal cancer patient a much higher quality of care than was the norm in the United States. This involved care in four realms, the physical, the psychological, the social, and the spiritual, with these components being provided by an integrated team of individuals. We moved from New Haven to Buffalo in 1967 with the concepts of Dr. Saunders lodged in our brains. While Charlotte was serving on the board of the Buffalo Visiting Nurses Association, she came into contact with a nurse from the University of Buffalo faculty named Irene Mahar, who also had an interest in the hospice concept. They put their heads together and decided to explore the possibility of a hospice care in our city. An initial board was formed comprised of the following individuals. Ralph Lowe, pastor of Holy Trinity Lutheran Church, Charles Bachman, a hospital chaplain at Erie County Medical Center, Father Eugene Ulrich, a Roman Catholic priest who had worked with Dr. Saunders in London, Irene Mahar, the nurse I mentioned, with Charlotte serving as chairperson, and I was a sixth member, working at that time as a surgical oncologist at Roswell Park Cancer Institute. Wow, she really brought a lot of visionaries together, really learned from Dr. Saunders to begin with, and then brought local visionaries together to really get this started. That's impressive. What were the earliest steps that you all took to get hospice started? This group met a number of times and gradually organized a strategy to develop the idea of a unit in Buffalo. The biggest part of that task was to edu educate the public and the professions about the basic concept. A number of informational meetings were held, carrying the message to various groups. Gradually, things began to fall into place, with an early important addition being the participation of a young surgeon, Dr. Robert Milch. His presence lent a necessary degree of medical respectability to the project. It's wonderful to have both of you here to, to tell the story. That's really terrific. I'm certain there must have been obstacles that you overcame to get this underway, but could you tell us what those obstacles were? I would list these. First, in some quarters, there was no real interest in making any changes in the manner of caring for patients with terminal illness. Second, it was difficult for the authorities to find a place to fit this new concept into the overall structure of health care at that time. I remember one incident from those early days when Charlotte went to the state capital, Albany, to present the concept to some of the state health authorities. After her presentation to those experts, their response was, Lady, why don't you go back to Buffalo and take care of your children and let us manage the health care needs of New York State? The third obstacle was the difficulty in finding for this innovation in medical care. The Wendt Foundation of Buffalo took a chance and did provide assistance in those early days, and then gradually more definitive sources of support came online. Those are just testaments to her, her championing of this idea and her perseverance and how important that, that really was in getting this started. Was there support from the community along the way? There were a surprising number of people in the community who recognized the need for better terminal care, and many of these volunteered their help in various capacities. Was Charlotte active in the hospice movement beyond Buffalo? At that time, what was occurring at the national level was impressive. Across the country, a number of hospice units were getting off the ground, 
and individuals involved in the movement formed the National Hospice Organization in order to pool information on how to solve the many problems that the movement faced. Charlotte Shedd served as treasurer of the national organization. Gradually, some of the units organized to a point where they could offer care to patients, and the modern hospice concept got underway with the movement in time becoming a major enterprise that it is today. So I'm wondering then, Dr. Milch, if you could share with us what the nature of hospice care was at the time you came and joined Hospice Buffalo. In the beginning, it was very much a volunteer and frenetic service that uh, bears little resemblance to the programs of today. Reflecting on one of the questions you asked Dr. Shedd, we served as a demonstration project in New York State for uh, hospice care. That's a testament to what Charlotte uh, was able to accomplish just with limited resources. But in 1982, the federal Medicare benefit was crafted, which was a lifeline for us because it provided a steady source of now of reimbursement, which we did not enjoy up to that point, and we had been giving care for five years, then dependent on the generosity of the community and bequests from patients and families. The benefit turned out to be a, a two-edged sword. I perhaps have shared some of this story before, but how we got the notion of six months or less as defining the Medicare benefit uh, really came from uh, David Stockman, who was the man, uh, chief of the Office of Management and Budget. And when they were crafting the, the benefit, they came to Mr. Stockman and said, well, if we had X number of people, theoretically, who could be covered by the benefit and Y amount of money allocated for it, how long could we afford to pay for it? He said six months or less. And so the defining part of the hospice Medicare benefit of six months or less comes from an actuarial and has no clinical relevance, as we all know, to the service that's provided. That notwithstanding, it was a gift at the time. It's such an interesting juxtaposition because I know now the Medicare hospice benefit is often seen as a barrier. The six-month rule is often seen as a barrier to appropriate timing of hospice care. Certainly conceptually, mm -hmm. uh, it is. And for a whole slew of rational and irrational reasons that, uh, as I say, a two-edged sword. Interesting. Thank you. So how has hospice care changed since that time? It sounds like you really were there during the volunteer era and then you know, saw the change from the Medicare hospice benefit. So how, what are the major changes that have accompanied that process? It, certainly organizationally, uh, the use of an interdisciplinary team, physician-directed, nurse-coordinated, utilizing the services of uh, professionals in social work, in chaplaincy, in counseling, and even in the organization of volunteers has brought a degree of coordination uh, and rationality to the care which is offered. We've also expanded our vistas far beyond those of strictly taking care of the patient with cancer, recognizing that if palliative and hospice care is appropriate for patients who are approaching the ends of their lives, they should not be a diagnostically restrictive component to it. And so we 
presently take care of more patients who have heart and lung and neurologic disease than we do patients who have cancer. Interesting. And their trajectories are different. Um, the, the, their ways of dying are different. So I imagine that that really shapes and, and has influenced the delivery of care at the end of life. Absolutely. The nature of care has become much more sophisticated. Demands for understanding the different therapies, far more complex and involved. Reliance on the smooth working of the interdisciplinary team, much more crucial mm -hmm. uh, from the way it was, let's say, 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. But that's also been the fun of it, is to change with the changing needs mm -hmm. and to see that uh, we're able to bring a, a slew of skills across the professions to bear as needs have changed. Mm -hmm. One of the other dramatic changes that I've seen and you've lived is the advent of new environments for hospice care. And now hospice is not only delivered in the home as it was in the beginning when Charlotte was beginning this movement. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the different environments for hospice care and how they've come to be. We wanted our program to be able to meet the needs of patients and families wherever they were. So while we began as a home-based service, we rapidly developed liaisons with the hospitals in western New York so that we could have acute care services for patients who needed it for symptom management or patients who could no longer be safely cared for in their own homes. We rapidly identified then the needs of patients, particularly the frail elderly who could not be cared for in their own homes and so established far-reaching programs with uh, the skilled nursing facilities in the community and at the present time have contractual arrangements with more than 25 of them so that we could care for those patients in that population as well. We also uh, developed the concept of the residents, the hospice residents, which is fundamentally assisted living for people who would otherwise have to be in nursing homes, people who can't live by themselves in a safe environment, for example. Uh, and we find in that patient population uh, longer lengths of stay very often than we do patients who otherwise would have to be at home or institutionalized elsewhere. We've also expanded uh, the capabilities of our acute care services, our inpatient unit here in Cheektowaga, and the number of hospice beds in hospitals across the region. So that uh, with the exception of uh, Roswell Park, we have hospice-affiliated beds in every hospital in western New York. It's amazing to hear how much and how comprehensive it is. I know it hasn't always been like that. I'm wondering, when I think, when you think back about the movement and how it came to be, how Hospice Buffalo ended up at this location. And, and I know there's a story that goes along with the, the different locations. I'm wondering if you could share with us kind of where some of the places were along the way that Hospice was. Yeah, we've we've wandered quite a bit. Actually, we started in Charlotte's dining room. <laughs> truth to tell. Uh, and that's significant because the mutual support that the founders had in with one another and starting to set foot out in the community, I think, was critical. And then the offices, of course, moved from 2929 Main Street, which was the second floor of a 
the loft of uh, the Pollock Paint Factory, as I recall, right next to All High Stadium. It was uh, House of Creaky Steps. And from there, temporarily out uh, on the uh, north campus or near the north campus of the university. And then in 1990, beginning a capital campaign to acquire 21 acres as part of the Rheinstein Nature Preserve, which is our, our present home. Wow, what a story. It really is just so interesting to see the whole development of all this. So in your experience as a hospice physician, you have worked in all these environments and you've worked throughout the history. I'm wondering what the greatest challenges are that you face. You see people at the bedside, you see the organizational issues, you see the national picture. What are the greatest challenges that you face on an on a daily basis? All the above. <laughs> Actually, I think it, it depends uh, almost on a given day. The challenges of uh, meeting the needs of patients and families in their homes still is the bedrock of, of hospice care. Everything else needs to be in service to the concept of patient care. The challenges of locating that care elsewhere in hospitals, in acute care settings, in residences or nursing homes, each brings its own set of challenge, whether it's the negotiations or the actual care delivery. The challenges of team support and for physicians who very often are, I'm told, a little headstrong and uh, you know, with the captain of the ship uh, sort of mentality. Ha uh, learning to function as part of an interdisciplinary team where primacy is assumed by the professional for whom the patient and family have the greatest needs at any moment in time. It may be that the physical symptoms are well controlled and the doctor thing has been taken care of, but we need the counseling that comes best from the social worker perhaps, or from the chaplain, or perhaps there are needs in the home where we need a child life specialist to work with the children of, uh, of patients and younger members of the family constellation. Learning to do that is, uh, is a process and can be a challenge. Now one of the other challenges I think is trying to facilitate the utilization and incorporation of hospice and palliative care into the mainstream of healthcare delivery, certainly starting with education, starting in the schools, medical school, nursing school, school of social work. Uh, and I'm glad to say we have cordial relations within the, within the, the educational community. Working with our colleagues in medicine, to perhaps uh, sensitize them to the utility of these supportive services for uh, patients uh, who have highly symptomatic and chronic and progressive illnesses and to be able to provide palliative care and hospice services across a continuum in patients' lives. That can be challenging and certainly is, is done on an ever-changing landscape. I'm wondering how similar or different um, some of those challenges are nationally. It seems as though you've had the experience, you know, richly here. I, I'm, and I'm thinking it's probably very similar to physicians elsewhere. Yes and no, actually. I, uh, perhaps ethnocentrically, tried to 
keep our focus local and regional. And and while the national kudos which followed were uh, heartwarming to see and I think uh, reflected uh, uh, part of the sophistication of our program as it was developing, there are differences between what we have been able to do and some of the challenges that other programs face. For example, uh, we, as part of a certificate of need state, are the only hospice in Erie County. In the city of Houston, there are 35 hospices. And by virtue of the uh, competition, if you will, that has been set up, many of them uh, are not able to offer the scope of services which we've been able to offer here, perhaps by keeping, oh, it goes back to Robert Browning, you know, a man's reach should exceed his grasp, else what's a heaven for, and trying not to overreach, but to remain pertinent to the needs of our community. In all these challenges, I'm sure there are rewards as well, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that's like for you, what the rewards are of being a hospice physician on all these levels. Certainly at the professional level, knowing that uh, you've helped patients achieve a, a level of physical comfort and control of that aspect of their uh, disease uh, and illness is always rewarding. But I think the opportunity to, to revert to the pastoral role, which physicians used to uh, used to have perhaps in, in more abundance than we see our charge to be now uh, is personally rewarding. Tell the students and the residents you, when we hear especially, well you're doing hospice work, isn't that depressing? You know the first challenge is to redefine a good outcome and to work with patients and families to set the bar as to what they would consider to be a good outcome. And if you can meet those expectations and those hopes for patients and families, well, there's nothing more rewarding to, to a physician. The other reward comes from working with colleagues across multiple disciplines and to be able to see the degree of facility that they bring to their professions and their interactions with patients and families. It's like Dr. Shedd shares a feeling that I have. You know when you've seen a great surgeon work. You know when you've seen a good operation. Well, when I see how my colleagues work and what happens when a chaplain or a social worker has had the opportunity to help with resolution of distressing symptoms, well, that's, that's a little bit of magic, too. Magic is a good word for it. Thank you for that. So in the end, we've heard the history of this movement. We've heard the history of this in- incredible organization that's now you know, to come to a full, comprehensive nature of hospice care. I'm wondering if you think that the past predicts the future and in any way what your vision of what would be coming would be for either of you that would be willing to share your thoughts about what the future holds for hospice and palliative care. My hope would be what Bob has already mentioned, the total absorption of the hospice concept into the mainstream of medical care. Absolutely. So it's, an, so it's a household word. It's an everyday word. It's not something special or categorized, but it's everywhere, woven into the fabric. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think, and I think we're getting there. Over time, we now care for 
40% of the uh, people who die uh, from illness in Erie County uh, every year. I, I dare say that speaks to one way or another becoming more mainstream. I think our challenge is going to be to maintain our dexterity, our willingness to, to study our environment, uh, our, our fellow citizens' needs, and craft innovative programs that still are true to the tenets of palliative care, hospice care, and meet those needs in a challenging and changing environment. Absolutely. And in this era of health care reform, d doing so in a fiscally manageable way is always also a challenge, I would guess. Uh, abs absolutely. It's a constantly moving target. Thank you very much, Dr. Shedd and Dr. Milch, for sharing your experiences and your expertise in hospice care and for your wisdom about the needs of people who are dying and their families. We are greatly appreciative of having this in our series. Thanks so much today. Thank you, Deborah. Thanks, Deborah. You've been listening to Drs. Donald Shedd and Robert Milch discuss the history of Hospice Buffalo. Thanks for listening and join us again next time for more lectures and conversations on social work practice and research. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.